Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Boundless Compassion of God, with a message entitled, The Fruit of Revival. So let's turn in our Bibles to Jonah, chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I fear that among contemporary Christians, there's there's a lack of understanding as to what is the impact of revival. Most of the people in our day have not ever seen a revival. We, we've never even read about revival, nor do some even know that such a phenomenon actually exists. So let me give two examples. In 1857, out of a prayer meeting in New York City and the events that followed over the next two years, a million converts were added to American churches and probably again as many in both England and Ireland. In 1904, the Welsh revival began under the preaching of Evan Roberts, and in the span of two years in the small country of Wales, 100,000 converts were added to the church. As the revival spread, more than 5 million were added in other countries. See, those sudden outbreaks of the grace of God are often preceded by a number of factors. Faithful biblical preaching with an emphasis on repentance from sin, unreserved commitment to Christ, and a fascination with a life of holiness. Uh, Then there's this burden of prayer as believers unite together. You know, often old animosity between believers is broken as forgiveness and love flows between brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I've mentioned the overwhelming pervasiveness of repentance from sins. So sexual impurity, exploitation of others, deep prejudices, and a lack of love for God, these things are openly renounced. But revivals don't go on forever. But their effects are widely felt. See, revivals often change a culture for generations. You might want to consider the effects of the Wesleyan revivals in England. You know, prior to those revivals in the 1700s, according to one bishop at the time, England had collapsed to a degree never known in any Christian country. England was violent. It was said that to travel even in broad daylight, you know, one had to prepare oneself like going into battle. So many were the robbers and murderers who might assault you on the road. All manner of people had set up false lighthouses and signals off the English shore to cause ships to crash into the rocks. They paid no attention to the drowning sailors while they lined their pockets with whatever they could get from the wrecks. Public drunkenness was widespread. Marriages were in trouble. Wages were low. Corruption was high. Children were often put into work camps, and many of the most well-placed clergy were unconverted men who had become obscenely rich. I could just go on and on. What happened after the revival in which millions came to faith in Christ? Well, one of the converts was William Wilberforce, credited with bringing an end to the slave trade in England. Industrial transformation brought dignified working conditions. There were prison reforms. Wage laws brought wages to liberate many out of poverty. Ships' safety regulations saved many lives at sea. Again, we could go on and on. See, I think the point is this. God cares deeply about the ruined condition of the human soul. Yep, he wants to bring salvation to the lost, and he wants to bring holiness to those who are languishing in evil and sin. But the overflow of revival changes society. It even benefits those who have not been saved. See, the point is that revival often touches government. 
and the way in which people govern is transformed. Well, we've been studying the book of Jonah, and we've come to the point where we have seen that a great portion of the people of Nineveh believe at the preaching of Jonah. Even though the prophet has done nothing but name sins and condemn sins and promise the judgment of God, uh, that is, unlike all revivals, the prophet holds out no hope of reconciliation with God or of forgiveness nor of mercy. Jonah never mentions the chesed of God, that is, the love of God expressed in his covenant. Indeed, Jonah never mentions the covenant name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. Instead, he only speaks of Elohim, that is, of God. God as creator, God as owner of all things, and God as the righteous judge. But there must have been a fervency in the, in the prophet's denunciation of the sins of Nineveh, And there must also have been a work of God in piercing the hearts that the people, our text says, you know, from the greatest to the least, that is, from the rich nobility to the poorest in the land, all put on sackcloth and fasted, which was a sign of remorse and mourning for the sins Jonah would have highlighted. It's very much like a revival without the preaching of grace. But even as far as it goes, there's an overflow to what happens. And just like all revivals, one begins to see the effect even in government. So we begin with Jonah 3, verse 6. And our text says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, in every case of revival in which I am aware, the revival begins with the common people and only later moves on to the corridors of political power. I think this is very important to notice because in the minds of many modern-day Christians, it's the other way around. See, some of us talk about voting blocks and getting our candidate into power and changing the political landscape. We talk about getting key legislation passed that deals with matters important to us. But in all of this, we're always left disappointed and we succeed in no more than blunting our evangelistic opportunities. You know, people don't see us as servants of Jesus offering reconciliation with God and offering love and mercy. Rather, they then tend to see us as political opponents pushing our political agenda. John Wesley, perhaps one of the greatest revivalists in the last 500 years, was known as a man who readily identified with the poor and the powerless. You know, his ministry to minors and to others reminds us of, of where Jesus spent his own efforts among the poor and the needy, the helpless, and the worst in society. And so for me, the words in Jonah 3 verse 5 that say, the word reached the king of Nineveh, well, that's hardly surprising. See, after all the spiritual work that was being done, then finally, the news reaches the king. Revivals reach the people first, and then only and then into politics. But in this case, the response of the king is so very encouraging. He humbles himself right alongside of the common people. The text says he removed his robe. And the word robe that's used here is the very same word that's found in Joshua 7.21, where we're told that Achan stole a robe and hid it under his tent. See, after the defeat of Jericho, Achan saw this as a way to get personally rich. And I only mention this here to help us to understand how valuable an item in most cases was such a kingly robe. But the king seems ready to take it off. And he joins the humblest in the land, and he's clothed in sackcloth. Notice the radical change that's happening in the king. See, our text says first that he rose from his throne, that is, he came down from it. 
Second, notice he takes off his robe. And then third, he covers himself in sackcloth. And then fourth, he sits in the dust. It's not that he sees a political advantage in doing this. He's repenting. I mean, after all, he's not just a king. He's, he's also a human being. God is changing this man's heart as well. He's personally affected. He's shaken up. And then let's read of the amazing thing that happens next. Jonah chapter 3, 7 to 9 says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice now that the king turns from his personal response to now activating the power of government. I've already made note that before slavery ended in England, the revivals had come. Wilberforce had been converted, and he had a long and tireless battle to make illegal the trade in human beings as slaves. You know, Wilberforce first went about this by putting forth bills in the British House of Commons to ensure that the transportation of slaves on ships would be humane, as well as the treatment of slaves. And that began to give the population the idea that the men and women who were bought and sold as slaves were genuine human beings created in the image of God. They deserved to be treated that way. And see, and that in itself was a shocking revelation to some. You know, once this program started, that humanizing of African slaves, eventually it would lead to the abolishment of the slave trade. But here in Nineveh, it's not a member of the House of Commons, it's the king himself, the one who rules and has power. He can make decrees that must be followed. He can order the course of the nation, and he does. Politics really does affect the way people act and the way they think. And now this king, having been deeply impacted by the message of Jonah, is ready to act. Well, hallelujah. We're so grateful for those who tune into our radio program every day read our online resources, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. This week, we received an encouraging note from a couple. Robbie and Karen wrote to say, we found ourselves in the same situation as many folk, unable to fellowship with other believers in Christ since the COVID virus has started. We were so grateful to tune into Back to the Bible Canada, to be fed God's word and have the passages so clearly explained. Both of us have learned so much since the COVID lockdown began. Well, we're so thankful to hear words of encouragement like this from people all over Canada. And we're grateful for those who give financially so that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada can continue to impact lives. Don't forget this month, every dollar you give will be doubled up to $50,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. The king of Nineveh has issued a decree, and I notice the text says that the decree comes from the, from the king and his nobles. That indicates that the king's not acting alone. And some have suggested that this might indicate that, that the time of Jonah really did coincide 
with a time of national weakness in which the power of the king had been so eroded that he was unable to make a proclamation on his own. It might be the case, but you know, I also find it encouraging that the king doesn't act alone. The nobles are in full agreement with the king, and that would mean that the entire political structure was also in agreement with his decree. You know, the decree is an official government policy, and it calls for four things. You know, first, the decree for nationwide fasting. You know, I know that in our contemporary society, it it almost seems inconceivable. But it wasn't that long ago when, you know, there was a natural disaster or during a time of war or some other time of crisis that Western democracies regularly called for the nation to go to prayer. That came with the understanding that we really are first and foremost accountable to God. And then, of course, we're also dependent on God. Yeah, the government does do all that it can, but its powers are limited. We are at all times dependent on God. See, I've noticed that as I record this, you know, we're still struggling with a global pandemic, and it may yet get a lot worse before it gets better. None of us knows what the future will yet bring. And there's been no national call to prayer. That means we're still in darkness. You know, the kings and nobles in Nineveh are doing more than calling for prayer. They're calling for fasting. You know, sometimes the Old Testament refers to that as afflicting ourselves. You know, it's to renounce food for the sake of the soul. And interestingly enough, you know, they even call for the fasting among animals. They're not to be fed. The whole nation is to humble itself. Second, the edict calls for wearing sackcloth. And in our day where during the pandemic, I noticed that the wearing of masks have become a political matter. Some people absolutely refuse. You know, imagine here the entire nation is told not to dress themselves as they normally do. They're, They're told to wear the clothing of the poorest of the poor as a sign of humility. Now, this matter was to make themselves physically miserable to show the genuineness of the inner misery of their sin. And then third, the edict calls for everyone to call out to God. National prayer is mandated. The nation is to stop and pray, recognizing that God is angry with them. They are to plead with God. You know, the ESV translates this as they are to mightily call on God. It can also be translated as let them call on God with strength. The NIV translates it as let them urgently call on God. They make every effort to gain God's attention. And you have to imagine what it would have looked like in homes, in the city gate, along the streets of the city, in places where the public gathered, in places where under normal circumstances, businesses would be having business done and in shops and in other places. So you have to imagine the city wherever you go. You see large and small groups, people gathered together for prayer, urgently pleading with the God of heaven for mercy. You know, the only image that I can get of such a thing was on one occasion, the church where I was serving, well, we decided that we would hold a service in the old hockey stadium on Renfrew Street, where the Vancouver Canucks used to play their games. And we rented the entire stadium, and some 8,000 people showed up. We all filled half of the stadium. I remember the parking attendants employed by the city were in absolute confusion. I mean, what are all these people doing here? It's just one church. And and as you entered into the stadium, all through the place, men and women were gathered, a great many of them praying for one another. I thought, look, I'm sure this stadium has never seen anything like this before. Uh, The same must have been true in Nineveh. If you could have circled overhead, you'd have seen them everywhere, 
prayers, the earnestness, the body language, the cries from the streets, it would have been pervasive. And then fourth, they are to turn from evil. And here, uh, the matter of violence is foremost in the mind of the king and in the mind of the nobles. The prayers of the people should match their attitudes. Notice here that the decree is given in the singular. Let everyone, every person, turn from his evil ways. It's an individual response that is required. You know, we live in a day when it's very popular to speak about systemic evil rather than personal evil. Our culture always talks about necessary structural changes that are required, but our culture never talks about the personal sins that must be renounced. I mean, those seem to remain. But Nineveh was different. They mentioned the personal violence, and that's no doubt because the nation itself was a violent nation. But now every man or woman must renounce their own violence, and no doubt that would trickle through the entire land. And then after all that, the king and the nobles have words to the entire population. Who knows, they ask. That is, they don't know. And they have no promise from God that he might be merciful to the penitent. They don't have 1 John 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There was for them no story of a Savior who would come to die on a cross for their sins. Even though Christ had not yet come, there were promises in the Old Testament that might have encouraged the Ninevites. Had they heard of them? I wonder what the Ninevites might have done if they had heard of King David's sin and then heard Psalm 51 being read where David prays, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What if they had heard of the Day of Atonement? There the priest would lay his hand on a goat and confess the sins of the people and slaughter the goat and remember that God had devised a way to remain just and to forgive his covenant people. Would the Ninevites have asked if that covenant might be spread wider so that it might cover their sins as well? Perhaps they could have heard Leviticus 16 verse 30 being read. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Now, what would they have done if they would have heard the words of David from Psalm 103, verses 11 to 13? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. See, you have to wonder what these people would have done with Psalm 103. What joy they might have felt. But they heard nothing of that. You know, from their perspective, it's it's a faint hope that's worth pursuing. Who knows, says the king. I certainly have no promise. I have no assurance. But it's not outside the realm of possibility that God might yet turn from his fierce anger. Again, we're left to contemplate Jesus' words that the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this generation, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, a preaching only of condemnation and wrath. And yet, how many who have heard the message of Jesus today and of his cross and through it, his willingness to extend mercy and yet simply refuse to repent? Compared to the people of Nineveh, the thought's staggering. It strikes me that the contrast between what happens in Nineveh And that which happened in the northern kingdom of Israel is so great. See, the northern kingdom was actively turning from God, and Nineveh was turning to him. I wonder what Jonah thought about that. 
you know, I think he did not think about it at all, and we're going to find that in the next chapter. But our chapter ends with an amazing sentence. Jonah 3 verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The very faint hope they had was realized. This city at this time would not be treated as Sodom and Gomorrah. No fire and brimstone would fall from heaven. It would be mercy. This really is an amazing story, but it reminds us of the way in which God moves. Revival is ordained by God, and it reflects his interest in providing mercy for people who only deserve wrath. In Nineveh, it caused a group of people to reflect on their own cruelty. And I know, with time, the effects of this revival would fade, and then their old sins would make a comeback. But revival always reminds us that God has interrupted the decay of a culture, a civilization, and a country. In marvelous fashion, God's revivals remind us that we have not yet come to the end of the world, and God is interested in offering people a chance to repent. How about you? Would you join with the many of us and pray that God would yet display this kind of grace in our land once again, so that we, in our country, might have the opportunity to return to Him and find mercy? For if there is no revival, well then, there remains for us only wrath. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, have there been revivals that we can point to in Canadian church history? And if so, is there something we can learn from those? Yeah, I mean, I love to talk about the uh, Sutera Twin Revival that happened in the city of Saskatoon, and I believe that was in the 1970s. Um, It's such a fascinating account because it was a surprising work of grace. Um, These uh, Sutera twins, which were uh, twin brothers from the U.S., had come to preach a message which they had preached all over the place, except that the results in Saskatoon were so much greater than these uh, these twin brothers had ever seen before. And, uh, you know, the story is well worth finding some uh, literature on those revivals and encouraging our hearts, because it did happen in this country, um, and uh, it, it resulted in, in, in a wonderful unifying of the church and the reaching out to the lost. I would argue that one of the reasons why the prairies have had such a strong gospel presence, it comes out of those very revivals. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We're so grateful for all of our listeners from coast to coast to coast. If you'd like to join the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, we'd love to invite you to become a member of our new 1119 Fellowship, our monthly donor program. We're also grateful to be able to offer all of our listeners the opportunity to participate in a special match campaign this month that was launched at our recent virtual event, The Gathering. For every dollar you give toward the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding opportunities to share the truth of God's Word in Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, perhaps this is the perfect time. 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.